Hey, I'm Josh. And I'm Joseph. And this is What's Going On in the Garden. A podcast where we talk about what's going on in the garden. Well, Joseph, how have you been? It's uh, been a while. It has been a while. We were supposed to do this last week, and then I was feeling lazy, so we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're a little uh, a little behind, but we're here. Better yes. late than never. And our, and our tens of fans are devastated. I actually did get a message on Instagram of somebody asking when the podcast was posting, so we have at least one person that we have to keep doing this for. Yes, thank for, thanks for prompting us. We have to... Keep our fans and listeners happy. <laughs> uh, let's see. It's late June now, right? I know. Kind of mid to late June. Yes. Um, what's going on in the garden? Well, it feels like summer, like officially, officially. It's been kind of hot for a while, but it gets hot early here. But we're definitely moving into the summer blooms. The spring things are gone and over. Yeah, it feels like we're really into the summer, summer for sure. Yeah, I thought maybe that's what we could talk about today is summer blooms, because it seems like a lot of things are flowering right now, both at the home <laughs> garden and at your off-site garden where you do your breeding projects, too. So one of the things that we have blooming in the garden now are irises, but we've had irises throughout the season. So uh, there are lots of different kinds of irises. Which ones do you say bloom earliest? So the earliest, at least here are the Algerian or the Algerian winter iris. iris. And again, here means coastal Virginia. Yes, coastal Virginia, um, where we can, so the um, <clears throat> iris ugulicularis, I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's, it starts, can start blooming here in like January. It's an, a, a winter blooming iris. Someone in the upper Midwest just lost their mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's certainly, so you can have an argument whether that's the earliest iris or the latest iris, because it can really be blooming through the winter, like um, snowdrops down here, where they can start um, late and early. Um, <clears throat> so that's definitely the, the, the earliest and or latest uh, irises for this climate. Um, it's a nice little iris that I've just started. Um, I got some the first time this year. It's something that I've sort of been aware of, but since till we lived in colder climates, we're not available. Um, uh, but it's, really, it's a really nice little iris and pretty nice foliage um, through the rest of the year. And then there is Iris reticulata, which I learned about very early on in our relationship. <laughs> so the story is we'd only been dating for a few months, I think, and we lived in Michigan. And We've probably been dating about a year. You think so? Yeah, because we I met, in, we met in December. We didn't then take a trip to to month, matter of months later to... to Toronto. I find it difficult to believe that I would put up with what I'm about to say <laughs> if I had been with you for a year. But anyway, you you uh, drug me to Toronto and you said, we're just going to stop here. We're going to be here maybe 15 minutes. I just want to look at this guy's irises and then we can go have fun in Toronto. First of all, the customs agent stopped us because it was like February or March. Yeah. And she said, why are you coming into Canada? And you said... We're going to go visit this guy's garden and see his irises. And she thought you were full of it. <laughs> yeah, she 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 did not believe us. She couldn't figure out what we were actually up to, but yes. clearly did not believe. She was like, "There was snow just a matter of weeks ago." It's like, "Yes, I know this is." But the retic which is the cool thing about the reticulata group of irises, iris reticulata, and the related species, is that they really bloom super early, and especially when we lived in Michigan in these northern climates, it's great to have almost as soon as the snow melts small little bulbous irises that bloom very, very early. 
Yeah, so my memory from the three hours <laughs> that I spent in that uh, man's yard looking at his iris reticulata is that they are tiny little things. Really small, yeah. yeah. So only maybe a few inches tall. Um, I think of them, you know, like you would think of, say, crocuses or snowdrops, okay. very early spring-blooming bulbs. The individual plants are not large, but so great to get some early color, especially in cold climates when you're desperate for early spring bloom. Um, Do you think those bloom in January here, too? No, they probably bloom about the same, probably February, March, I would think, okay. here. I would think... That's, that's like daffodil time here. Yeah. So I think it's one of those things that's more valuable, and I think they're also going to straw. I haven't grown them down here, I don't think. I've okay. seen them much down here. They like a dry summer dormancy. Um, and so in Michigan, I found them, they perform the best when I put them in sort of rock garden type conditions, really well-drained soils. Um, I think they might struggle here with the intense, long, wet summer when they're sitting as a dormant bulb. I don't, I don't see them in gardens much and I really haven't tried them. I think they're so valuable in the North because you give that early spring bloom, but here there's so many things that can bloom through the winter. It's hard to compete with camellias and everything else that's winter blooming down here. Right. They don't have, they don't, you know, they have to be a little showier, I think, but in the North, really valuable for early bloom. And they're pretty colorful. Yeah. Very colorful, yeah. And there's a bunch of new hybrids that I were visiting in the story that we spent three hours looking at his collection of little tiny irises, he's breeding a bunch of new colors and stuff, which is really great. Yeah. I remember thinking, oh, I'm, I'm really in for it with this one. <laughs> well, then there are the irises that are probably most common to lots of people, bearded irises and Siberian irises. You see them in a lot of, of gardens, I think. Yeah. I think most people... Like if you're not like if they think iris, they're thinking bearded iris. They're like the okay. quintessential iris, I think, the most common group. Um, if your grandmother had some irises in the garden, they were bearded irises. They're, I see. they're like the most, and they're very large. They can be though. There's miniature dwarf bearded irises that are can be as small as only okay. a few inches tall, almost as small as reticulatas, to the tall standard beardeds. And then there's all these groups. The iris society has these names like. Dwarf standard tall bearded border bearded it sounds like poodles. It's very confusing <laughs> all the classifications, but they can be from three to four feet tall to maybe a few inches tall. Um, so it's probably the most diverse group of irises, the bearded, bearded irises, bearded irises okay. because there's many many species and there's lots of breeding going on. So if you want the most widest range of colors and size and heights and bloom times, and there's reblooming ones that will bloom in the early spring, late spring, summer, and rebloom in the late summer. Um, I tend to not like the newer breeding because they're so... Too frilly. So roughly, it's very, like, I don't know, prom dress. No, not even prom dress. <laughs> Quinceanera. I don't I, know. Imagine Over no. the top, like, ruffles and, fl and flurries. Imagine uh, uh, the prom dresses weren't on Footloose when they finally got to dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very... Uh, and. I like flowers, but they can be too, you know, they can be too roughly. But I like, so I tend to find some of the older bearded iris varieties more appealing to me visually than the newest hybrids, which are just so f frothy. Um, <laughs> frothy. Um, I feel like, yeah, it looks like they're just so frilly, but um, there's a lot of bearded irises. The other thing about bearded irises I find here in this, and, and in wet climates in general, is... <clears throat> They go semi-dormant in the heat of the summer. They're native to places with, with the ancestors of them are native to areas with really dry summers. Um, and in areas where you have wet summers, the foliage tends to look pretty bedraggled. Oh, okay. 
Um, they get a lot of foliar diseases. They don't. They look kind of rough um, by the end of the summer because they're really not adapted to wet, humid summer conditions in general. I will say that something that I like about irises like bearded irises and Siberian irises is that they do have pretty distinctive, attractive foliage, at least when, when everything yeah. is, is right. Um, it's one of the first flowering plants I learned to identify because the foliage is so distinctive, those kind of thin blades um, that I think look good when they're in good shape. Yeah, and I think the Siberian iris, the they can almost look like an ornamental grass when right. it's out of bloom. And the bearded irises, the foliage can be really, really pretty. But I think in general, later in the summer, it's looking pretty sad for a lot of the bearded irises. So here, at least the bearded irises that you planted in our front garden bloom pretty early. I guess maybe April, May? Yeah, I think that's probably peak bloom for bearded irises okay. here. The ones we planted here also are rebloomer varieties. So we should get another flush of bloom uh, August, September. Okay. Um, on those, which which will be should be good. Do Siberian irises bloom a bit later than beardeds? Uh, beardeds are going to the beardeds will bloom earlier and later than Siberians. Right. Okay. Because there's such a wide range. The earliest beardeds can be very early, and the late ones after them. And the Siberians will be kind of in the middle. Um, <clears throat> but as you said, the Siberians have thinner foliage. I mean, again, I guess you, there's so much diversity in bearded irises. Yeah, but in general, but... a bearded, it's a wider, more like, and then leaf. And the Siberians have a very narrow, upright, uh, uh, vertical, you know, very narrow, almost grass-like. I think of the Siberian bloom, too, as a little bit more delicate. Yes, but the same thing's happening to Siberian okay. irises. Okay. The newest Siberian irises, Siberian hybrids, a bigger color range, more reds, more yellows, and... To me, they're get, they're getting overdone. I don't know. I don't like the too many lots of ruffles and the very full rounded petals that starts looking too artificial for my taste. But I think still the sort of there's a variety called uh, Caesar's Brother, which is like the classic Siberian iris that's in every garden. It's a, I, to me it looks very graceful and natural. Um, you know, dark purple blooms a little more uh, sort of wild plant looking and really, really beautiful foliage. So then there are some other irises that to me seem a, a little less common, but you can still see them around like Japanese irises or Louisiana. Yeah. So Japanese iris is iris and seta, which is native to Japan. And I, they are, I think, stunningly beautiful. The uh, Lewis Ginter Botanic Garden, which is right. not too far from us in Richmond, has a really incredible collection of them. Um, and they are... The flowers can be huge. I mean, when they're grown right, they can be like six, eight inches across. Massive individual blooms. Um, and they're a what's called a water iris, so they will grow in standing water. They don't demand standing water, but they certainly do not like dry conditions. Um, but they are really good plants for sort of the East Coast, especially our climate here on the, in Virginia, um, because our climate is very, very similar to Japan, where they're native. So they certainly are a good option. They love lots of rain, they love high humidity, and <clears throat> they, Japanese iris also like really fertile conditions. There's something, if you're not, uh, you want to give them lots of compost, lots of water, and that will reward you with really, really huge blooms. You also said there are some irises that we can't grow here, right? Like the Pacific Coast? Yeah, Pacific Coast irises are the, are, uh, the species that are native to, obviously, the Pacific Coast of North America. And they are so beautiful. Uh, the, uh, I've seen them in gardens and pictures. They have really beautiful forms. Um, but the Pacific Coast is summer dry climates. So the rain is concentrated in the fall through spring and then it's dry in the summer. 
and this, those are species native there, and they're beautiful, and they perform great if you live in a summer dry climate, and if you try to grow them somewhere where you have a summer wet climate like this, just not, not going to grow here. Well, you are a notorious dream killer. Every time <laughs> I find a plant that I think is beautiful and I want to grow, you tell me, you can't do that. And sometimes yeah. I try anyway, and then it dies. Yeah, but, but there's so much is like leaning into, if you want irises, I think lining up the type of iris with the climate you're in. So if you live in a summer dry climate, bearded irises are going to do great. Pacific coast irises are going to do great. In a summer wet climate, like we have the Japanese iris, which is a very similar climate, and then Louisiana iris, which are hybrids of um, <clears throat> the species native to the southeastern U.S. Really, really beautiful irises. And again, they're sort of a water iris. They like wet conditions, swampy conditions, and well-suited to uh, uh, rainy uh, climates as well. But in our back garden right now, yes. there are some beautiful irises blooming that you weren't sure they were going to. You, you you didn't think they'd work out, but they look great. Yeah, I wasn't sure we had enough sun back there. Most A lot of irises really like full sun, um, but they've done good. And it's sort of, our back garden is like half shade, half sun, and sort of sometimes I'm unsure what's going to uh, bloom back there. Um, but there are a hybrid called Sudata irises. So they're a hybrid between the Ensada, which is the Japanese iris, and another iris called Iris Pseudoechorus, which is the yellow flag iris. Um, so yellow flag iris is on like everybody's invasive species list. You should not plant it because it spreads aggressively into native wetlands. Um, it's a very, very vigorous yellow iris. Um, and the Sudata is a hybrid between that iris and the Japanese iris. And it's really, um, I really like them a lot because Japanese iris are beautiful but can be fussy. They really need lots of fertility. Uh, you know, great conditions to grow well, and the um, yellow flag iris is vigorous to the point of being a weed. And the hybrid is sterile, which is great, so it doesn't seed around. So I really like them a lot. They're really, really pretty. They have a lot of the beauty of the Japanese iris, plus the vigor of the yellow flag iris, and it'll kind of give you the best of both worlds on those. So they're going to clump out in the backyard? Yeah, they're going to spread and make a big mass, um, and yeah, we'll, and yeah, I think they would bloom more in more sun, but they're doing surprising, better than I thought in sort of that half-shade conditions in our backyard. We didn't talk about one of a big group of irises at all. We we're making this list about all the irises and did not mention Iris nerissii. Well, I blame you, clearly. <laughs> oh, I love Iris nerissii, though. The the way that, I don't know what you call that. The, is it, do you call it a scape or something that that sticks up and looks so... They have uh, a... Like spindly? <laughs> yeah, spindly. That's not, that's a great positive <laughs> word. Um uh, what do you what do you, you describe it? So the the flowering stem, the inflorescence makes a individual flowers are quite small, but they make a big, large branching mass of them. So they kind of, whereas most irises, it's a few very large flowers. They kind of make a cloud of many small flowers. Um, uh, people may know Iris nerissii by different names. So it is uh, a hybrid between uh, two species that used to be in their own genera and have now been reclassified into iris. So it used to be called uh, pardon canda um, because it's a hybrid between bellum canda and pardon thopsis, but now bellum canda and pardon thopsis don't exist anymore. Okay, you're so far out in the weeds right now. Yes, anyway, <laughs> it's a hybrid between two species As that have were. been reclassified to be to iris. So some people might not think of them as iris, and they don't look much like your typical irises, but they're a great summer-blooming iris. They haven't started blooming yet. They'll be coming on in the next, I guess, next few weeks. Um, yeah. But they're a really great 
very durable, um, long-blooming iris for the summer. And I, I really like them. I think they're kind of unique looking. I don't see them in many gardens. You see them very rarely. They're not very popular. Um, and I guess, I think it part of it may be the bloom time because okay. they do kind of bloom later in the summer. And but here summer never ends. So. But it's hard to sell. <laughs> Everyone goes to the nursery and buys plants in bloom in the spring. Uh, and things that bloom later in the summer sometimes are a hard sell because if there's just a pot of leaves at the garden center and people don't know what it is, it's really hard to convince people to buy them. Um, okay. Yes, we should not overlook Iris nerissii. Yeah. But calla lilies. Calla lilies. Probably my favorite flower. I love them so much, and I love the big plant that's in the backyard that seems to be doing really well in that garden. But when you were bragging about our beautiful calla lilies on Instagram, people out west, right, were saying yes. that it's a weed. Everybody, yeah, so everybody on the west coast was like, oh, it's a weed, it's a weed. You know, my friends from like Portland down into Cal northern California were all like, oh, it's such a terrible weed. Um, but that's, weediness is so climate specific. And I had friends, other friends then chimed in who are on the east coast were saying, no, it's not a weed. Um, it does seem to be very vigorous and healthy here but not running and spreading and one thing everyone did agree on is once it's established it's very hard to get rid of uh, because any little piece of the roots that you leave behind if you try to dig it out are going to sprout and regrow so it may be the sense of you know if you have these big calla lilies um and you decide you don't want them, and maybe they may. That's when you may start cursing them. So the people to, who buy this house after us, they're going to have to accept. <laughs> yeah, but for now, it looks really beautiful. Really the plant too, I love yeah. it. Yeah. So the variety we're growing is called White Giant, okay. and you can see that the leaves are huge yeah, and kind of have this uh, like silver spots on the leaves, and then enormous uh, uh, white flowers. And it's done good in a pretty shady spot, half shade. And wet soils, they like yeah. uh, wet conditions. About the same as the irises we just yeah about, yeah conditions. yeah absolutely. The irises are a little more sun. Okay, um, but yeah, but they, it is a, like a wet loving plant. I think that's what we need. With yes. <laughs> so you have uh, some summer blooms happening in your offsite garden too, right? I haven't been over there, but I've seen the cut flowers you brought home. Yes. So it's gladiola season is just starting. Um, the best time of the year. Yes, the best time of the year is gladiola <laughs> season. I, I, I love gladiolas very much, which, keeping with our iris theme, is in the same family as irises, but a different genus, okay. um, which you can kind of see in the foliage, I think. I think so, too. You know, it it's definitely has that upright uh, blade-like... Uh, one of the common names, old common names of gladiolas is sword lily because of the, the, yeah. the shape of the leaves. Because, am I using it, is it a, a scape with all the flowers on it? You know, I don't think so, but I... You are useless! <laughs> <laughs> um, I think scape would be the... I don't know. Well, I just learned all these terms from hostas, right? The scape yes, and the, the petiole and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think scape would be the... It's weird because I don't... People use scape when they're talking about daylilies and hostas. And I'm not sure of the technical... I should know botanically the difference between a raceme and a scape and, a, and well, all those things. We've it's, done it. We found the limits yes, of your, of your I'm knowledge. I'm not good on the technical terminology for... Anyway, the spike the, yeah, right, has, can say. have lots of flowers on it. And if you get a good variety where they bloom, you know, all, all of them open around the same time, it looks really beautiful and impressive. I think that it's like an architectural kind of plant it's, and flower. Yeah, I really like them because there are they they give you that very vertical right uh, line in the garden. So I think like the garden designery people talk about you want to make sure you not have like the same, you know, if everything's like a low mound. 
that you like you the contrast of vertical shapes to mounded shapes to spreading shapes can give you that visual contrast in the garden. As a cut flower too, I've noticed so many modern interior design blogs have started using uh, gladiolus because of, of their shape. They look yeah. great in kind of a minimalist space. They're yeah, really I mean, beautiful. I think and they're modern. like the, the classic use for gladiolus is, is cut flowers. Um, I I really like them as just sort of garden plants too. I mean, but that's my personal breeding has been focused on breeding ones that are more cold hardy and perennial, that are a little shorter, um, so they don't need to be staked, so they don't fall over all the time. Um, some of the varieties that I've bred specifically for cut flowers or for like the gladiola shows and the gladiola society have such huge flower spikes that they can't support their own weight, which if you cut them, you cut them as soon as the flowers are opening and it's kind of fine. Um, but if you let them bloom out in the garden, those tall spikes get top heavy, especially when it rains and crash down in the mud. So that seems like that would be the big uh, problem if you just went out and bought gladiolus to plant in your garden that they would fall over. Yes. But the, the ones you're breeding don't I've been do that. breeding shorter ones and there are, there's a series called like Glad Mini or something like that. There are shorter varieties that are available um, if you're looking around for bulbs that don't that don't get so tall and are better as like a garden plant, not just a cut flower variety. Um, <clears throat> so what kinds of gladiolus are you growing now? So what's blooming right now are hybrids of the summer blooming species. We mentioned this earlier. We talked about the winter uh, blooming gladiolus. Right. So um, the in Africa where most gladiolus come from, virtually all of the ones we're talking about, um, are hybrids of African species. There's the summer, the winter blooming ones concentrated in South Africa, and then um, the what most people think of gladiolus, the classic hybrid glads, are bred from the summer blooming species, um, which are native of a wider range over Africa. But it's one of those plants that's where there's, it's not even clear what species went into the origin of the modern hybrid gladiolus, because the early breeding was pretty early and not good records about it, um, but they're some kind of derived from the, the summer blooming species of gladiolus. What are some of the varieties that you really like that are blooming now? So all the varieties that I have are my own hybrids and don't have a name. Oh, so they're going to be named after drag queens or something. Yes, there we go. So yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not growing anybody, I'm not growing anybody else's gladiolus. <laughs> um, at the point at the moment yeah there are so many there's so many varieties i really would recommend peter's gladiolus they're a canadian and we'll put a link in the or in the description they're canadian gladiolus grower they have a huge gladiolus collection and pictures of everything so you can sort through and find whether you want really ruffled frilly varieties or simple ones or all the color range is huge um they're really really fun and the fun thing about gladiolus is that they are cheap because the bulbs multiply very quickly. Um, so if you want to collect like the newest hybrids of daylilies, you can spend literally hundreds of dollars or hostas on the newest, latest and greatest. But the newest, latest, greatest gladiolus is, at most is going to cost you maybe five bucks. Wow. The bulbs are very, very cheap. So it's a, it's a fun thing to, to play with and explore and get into. I mean, you might spend up to 12. I can think of one person who's selling for like $12. But nobody's anywhere close to the prices. Plus, they're so much prettier than a daylily. Yeah, I mean. but but there's <laughs> the, like but they're a fun thing to explore because you can really you know get if you want to just I don't if you want to figure out which kinds of varieties you like, um, and then uh, they're very quick to multiply. If you're colder than zone seven or eight, you're probably gonna have to dig them up in the fall because they won't survive your winters. But they're uh, pretty okay. easy to dig the bulbs up 
and save them and multiply them for future years. So here they seem to be a June blooming plant. Yes. In Michigan, it was more like July, August. Yeah. Right? You can also change the timing. Uh, cut flower growers do this by planting some of the bulbs sequentially. Like you can plant them. They'll, they'll plant, they'll bloom a kind of a set number of time after the time you put the bulbs in in the spring. So if you have a bunch of them, you could plant some and then plant more a week later and plant them every week or every couple weeks and stagger the bloom through the season if you wanted to delay it. Um, I just here they're uh, perennial and I've been breeding for hardier ones so I just leave them in the ground and they all bloom kind of about the same time but you can also stagger that planting if you want to delay the bloom later in the summer. And I, I just got to say, they are so beautiful. I mean, you've been working on these for a few years now, several years. Yeah. And they are so beautiful. Anyone who follows you on Instagram knows this time of year is just a sea of color and they're, it's really beautiful. I really, really like them. Yeah, they're really fun. And they, they've been very uh, pest. Deer don't really bother them. Occasionally, before I had a deer fence, they would eat some of the flowers, but they're not like high in any animals like we love to eat it list. Um, I don't have major pests and diseases. They can be, there's a, a, a little pest called thrips that can deform the flowers a little bit, but it's not been serious. Um, so they've been, they're really pretty easy to grow. Um, and there's a lots of diversity. Uh, hummingbirds love them too, which I really like when I'm out working in the garden. I'm always trying to get a picture of it and never manage really, but, um, the ancestors are pollinated by birds in Africa. I guess they're sunbirds, I okay. would think. Um, but anyway, but they're... So hummingbirds are often on the flower spikes, which is really fun. Yeah, I really, really like them a lot. Okay, Joseph, what's a plant you're digging this week? Well, right now I'm digging cactus. Um, or I'm, I'm not digging them, I'm grafting them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I've been trying to do is graft uh, some pretty cactus that don't like wet conditions onto the roots of the prickly pear cactus that are native all over the eastern U.S. So I have to say, I, I don't know, you were growing a kind of cirrus before I got into this, but I had a whole cactus moment where I collected a bunch of cactus and I had them all over the house growing them inside. I tried to move them outside in the summer and it is just too wet here and we pretty quickly discovered, you know, by error, if, if we could have found out another way, I guess, which cactus will thrive in this kind of environment and which ones will absolutely not tolerate it even if you move them under an eave. Uh, I love, what's that person, the cactus person I uh, love? Deborah Lee Baldwin? Yes, yeah. she's always, she's out in California and she always says, oh, if it gets too wet, just move them under an eave and it just, you know, it rains for a week straight here. Yes. <laughs> and the, the air is steam, it doesn't work. So I've killed a lot. <laughs> But we have some that have really thrived yes. despite being wet. Uh, and I guess that's something you're trying to address, right? Yeah. So when we think of cactus as desert plants, and obviously, I mean, they're... So cactus is exclusive to uh, the Americas. And though certainly they are well adapted to the deserts, and a lot of the really cool ones are native to Western U.S., but there's cactus native pretty much anywhere you know, up into Canada... Uh, so for the prickly pears in the eastern uh, U.S. is the biggest ones, that, uh, which are very tolerant of wetter conditions. And then even in South America, there are these tropical uh, ones that don't look like, when you think of cactus, not at all, that are you know live in the rainforest. Um, so there are cactus adapted to all kinds of conditions. And cactus graft together really easily. I think people may have seen 
you know, there's the, sometimes it's called this moon cactus where it's like a bright orange or red cactus grafted onto a green sure. cactus. So that's sold because the colorful one doesn't have any chlorophyll and can't photosynthesize, so it would die, and so they graft it onto a green cactus so that the, the green cactus can keep the colorful one alive. But cactus are very easy to graft. And I had a conversation with a friend, I'm trying to think who it was, um, out in, I think they were out in Denver or something, saying that you could do this. You can graft some of the cool cactus that are native to dry, to, to dry climates onto something like a prickly pear that's adapted to wet climates, and then you would get the roots that are adapted to wet conditions, and then the top, which is the more showy, interesting cactus. Um, and hopefully then you get something that can survive our constant rain, um, but is more pretty and less obnoxious than prickly pears, because I hate prickly pears. Is the grafting pretty difficult? So easy, I'm kind of, cannot believe really? it. Really? Yeah. Like... I, so I took, so the prickly, the hardest thing is that prickly pears have those little hairs, the glockids. That this is opuntia, right? Yeah, opuntia, okay. yeah. Um, that stick in your skin. Right. So that's obnoxious. So I cut all those off first um, and wore gloves. Um, but I literally sliced off the top of the pad of the prickly pear, the opuntia, and then I just sliced off pieces of the other cactus and set them on the cut surface and then covered them to keep the humidity high. And in about four or five days they had healed together and they're wow. unified yeah well i know those opuntia pads they're so easy to propagate and yeah transplant. i mean that's generally whenever you're like propagating cuttings or grafting any n normal plants your big thing is keeping the two pieces from drying out while they're healing mm -hmm. and because cactus have all that stored moisture it's it's so much less work like you're grafting maples or something it's a whole production to keep it from drying out but I'm surprised. Now, who knows how well it'll work, <clears throat> but the grafting was actually really easy. So now I have the beginnings of the graft. I need to get the top part uh, to grow some more, and then I'll cut them off and root them and see whether it does what I hope it does. So for the mailbag this week, you got a question about oxalis? Yes. Some didn't know if their oxalis was dying or dormant. So first of all, what's an oxalis? So oxalis is a big genus, of a huge genus of plants, but many of the ones that uh, are popular are grown, sometimes sold as shamrocks or four-leaf clover plants. Sometimes they're sold around like St. Patrick's Day because they kind of have a clover-like look to the leaf. Some have colorful foliage, but uh, many of them are a bulb or a rhizome, and they have a seasonal dormancy period. They're native, many of them are native actually to South Africa, and they adapt to putting up leaves when it's raining, and then if it gets dry, the leaves die down, and they go dormant to the little rhizome. Um, and a lot of plants do this, and it can be very confusing if you're not used to it because the leaves turn brown and shrivel up, and it looks like your plant's dying, and it's very hard to know whether that's supposed to happen or whether um, <clears throat> you know it's it's alive or it's dormant um, so the advice I gave to this person I guys to give most people if you have something that you think is supposed to go dormant but you're not sure whether it's dead is to take it out of its pot and sort of root around and look because there should be some kind of bulb or rhizome or something in there that it's died back down to so the leaves are turning brown and you don't even have to uproot it if you kind of stick down your finger where the leaves went into the soil um, you can feel for that rhizome, which is, and what you want to feel for is something that feels firm and solid, 
If, oh my. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you get down there, it feels wet and mushy, that's, or crumbly and dry, you know, that has rotted or died out. But as long as you feel a bulb or something that still feels firm and solid, that's dormant. And what you want to do is keep it dry while it's in a dormant period and then start watering again once it starts putting up new leaves. Um, but a lot of plants will go regularly go into dormant periods, oxalis, a lot of cyclamens, uh, a lot of begonias, um, and you can, and that can be a good way to get things through the winter. If you dry them, let them go dry, it'll force them to the dormant period and store them over the winter and then water them again in the spring. All right. Well, if you have a question that you want to ask that maybe we'll answer or Joseph will answer <laughs> on a future podcast, you can send those to him via Facebook or Instagram. He's at Tychonovich on Instagram, and you can just search for his name on Facebook. I think you're probably the only Joseph Tychonovich in the world. I think so. I think we so. We haven't found another. Yes. Uh, you can also go to either of those places to see photos of some of the plants that we've talked about today and to see photos of the garden. You'll definitely want to check that out, especially those gladiolus. They look so great. Um, but I guess until we hear from you on one of those platforms, that does it for this week's episode. All right. We'll see you all in a couple weeks. All right. Happy gardening. Mm -hmm.